We are a community that loves like Jesus. And my hope and my prayer is that this would be a transformative space for you. Not just today, but every time you tune in. We're continuing our sermon series called The Sermon on the Mount. And today's sermon is titled City on a Hill. We've been covering Matthew 5, and we're going to read again verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand, and it shines on all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. So we've been talking about salt and light the last several weeks. And through this series on the Sermon on the Mount, what I've wanted to do is shape our way forward as we emerge out of a pandemic shutdown and rebuild who we are as a church and provide some direction. And I couldn't think of a better passage of scripture than the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, some of us have struggled getting back into church and being consistent and finding connection in person. And I would say that that's probably pretty normal since all that has been threatened and basically we've needed to stay apart to stay healthy. And that has taken a toll on our souls and some of our emotional health as well. So it would be normal as we fall out of habits and even have an aversion maybe to connection or maybe an aversion to fellowship and spiritual growth. I think it would be normal to run away from such things uh, during this time. But I want to encourage us to rebuild the soul by finding spaces to be together. Maybe that is in a community group. Maybe that's here at church. Maybe it's just dinner around a table with some friends or just gathering together in a small group of some kind just for some kind of fellowship. I want us to find creative ways to get together and connect, encourage one another in community, and loving each other in tangible ways. Maybe it's time to bake some things, cook some things, bring some things, help somebody in their yard, or wrench on some motor that they have, or something that we need that we can do for another person. Maybe it's something easy, maybe it's a sacrifice. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you to not... To, to not give in to the temptation of finding more gratification in isolation than connection. I want to encourage you to connect and practice the discipline of fellowship more than ever now. So last week, we walked through some Old Testament stories and how Abraham was shown the stars in the sky, and that was going to be the metaphor of his blessing. He and the nations he fathered would be blessed, and they had one task in front of them, and that was to be a blessing to all other nations. So when Jesus said salt and light, 
the people listening would have known the stories. They would have practiced these stories through meals and rituals. When they heard the words salt and light, it would have brought them right back to such stories like the beginning of creation and the way that God made them, that he spoke light into existence and he spoke seas and land into existence and human beings into existence. He made us and made all of creation for relationship. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see this consistent metaphor of light. And the command was to bring light into darkness. The command was to be a blessing to others. The command was to be in community with others, to love even those not like us, and to love those that were completely different or maybe just had a completely alternative outlook on life. We were to be a blessing to others, period. And that was the one mission, the one goal that God gave Abraham and the Israelite people. In other passages, there's metaphors of light being on top of a mountain. And this is associated with Jerusalem, which is the heavenly city. And people would see this light and be drawn to Yahweh. So Israel was called to be a city on this hill that shines into the darkness and that would draw the nations. So back in the day, traveling at night was dangerous. I, I think traveling at night, a lot of times, if you were out in the wilderness, is dangerous. The, the number one rule of hiking is don't hike alone, and number two rule is don't hike at night, right? Because night hiking or night traveling in remote deserts or remote wilderness is a dangerous venture. And people would actually light candles in their cities and their homes and their cities for sojourners so they can find their way. So a candlelit city off in the distance could be seen for miles. And it was a sanctuary for those that were the immigrants. It was a sanctuary for those that were traveling from one place to the other. And so this was a beacon of direction. It was a beacon of guidance. It was a beacon of safety. And so this was the picture that they had a city on a hill when they heard this. This was the direction. This was the guidance. This was the protection. This was to draw them to Yahweh. And that's what Jesus was hoping to communicate with this metaphor. So that hope and that safety, though, was not in earthly cities. It was not in earthly property. It wasn't in earthly kings, but in heavenly places, in, in, in eternal kingdoms. It was a heavenly king that could provide an eternal safety, an eternal guidance, an eternal hope, that guidance to eternal life. And this light would be given to the nations from nation to nation to all peoples. That word actually means everyone. That's not just a select chosen group of people. That's all nations. So first God was to be a blessing to the Israelite nation, yet this was a beacon of hope, a beacon of light that all would see and be drawn. So all nations would be blessed because of God's blessing and his covenant, that they would learn this, this covenant and this blessing would be a, an experience to learn to not live in 
let's say, the cultural war and violence that was promoted, but something different, something alternative in peace and in love. They were to live with peaceful intentions and to love their neighbor. They would not reject the vulnerable or reject the sick or reject those that had disease, but they would care for the orphans. They would heal the sick. They would care for the widow, and they would take in the immigrant, and they would reach into the margins to the marginalized. That nation would be a blessing to all nations in such a way that the nations would learn to love God just as God showed love to them, and they would learn to love people just like God showed love to them, that they would learn to reach into the unaccepted places. They would learn to accept and build others that they would not normally build up, that it would be countercultural to touch the leper or to heal the sick or to go to the blind or to accept the widow or to even dine with the prostitute or the thieves and the tax collectors would be at the table. So God wanted Israel to to model to the nation's right relatedness, not only with God, but righteousness with each other. How to be right related to God, how to be related to, to each other, and also to the earth and the animal kingdom, where that they would take care of the things that were around them and not just not just ravage the earth. So the metaphor for this is the light of the world. And we see allusions to, to the light of the world and, and just Isaiah talking about it actually all through the, the books of Isaiah. And especially in Isaiah 49, 6, he says, it is not enough since you are my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the survivors of Israel. Hence, I will also appoint you as light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That sounds familiar to me. Go to the ends of the earth and teach them all things, making disciples, Jesus said, to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are to be the light to all nations and bring salvation to the reach to the end of the earth. In Isaiah 42, starting in verse six, I, the Lord, have called you for, the, for a good reason, I will grasp your hand and guard you, and I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nation. Again, a covenant to the people, meaning that that word, people, in the original language would be all people as a light to all nations, to open blind eyes, to lead the prisoners from prison, and those who sit in darkness from the dungeon. Bring this light to dark places. Well, the issue with covenant in the Bible is God wanted to invite all the other nations into covenant. Yet later on, the, the Jews didn't like that, of course, and wanted the chosen people. They were the gatekeepers to the covenant. So the, so the chosen people, the blessing was only for their select group of people, and it was only for the select of the select. I mean, if you broke the rules, then you were out as well. So it wasn't just the nation, it was the, the purest, really, of that nation. Well, the covenant to the people means all peoples. So God's heart has always been to bless, bless Israel so that they would bless all nations. In Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 2, it says this, in the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house 
will be the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted above the hills. Peoples will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain, to the house of Jacob's God, so that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in God's path. Instructions will come from Zion, the Lord's word from Jerusalem. God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. Then they will beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning tools. Nations will not take up swords against nation. They will no longer learn how to make war. So, so all ancient peoples in this Near Eastern area believed that their chief gods lived on top of mountains. The demons lived in the earth, either in holes in the land or deep in the sea, and the gods lived on top of the mountains. And, and we actually, in our modern, modern day, in our modern culture, think of mountaintop experience. Just, just the phrase mountaintop experiences. It's like when we go up on top of mountains, we have an experience, or if you've ever climbed a mountain, it's like a spiritual experience. Well, when you're, when you're treading water in the sea, you think that fish are going to eat your toes, right? So the demons are in the seas that you can't see in the deep of the sea, but you go up on top of the mountain and it's like a spiritual experience. So I, I think that for all eons of time, we have actually believed that the gods live on top of the mountains, even subconsciously, and the demons live in the seas or in the holes in the ground. Think about going in the deepest of caves and let's say it was dark. How do you feel about that, right? It's kind of scary. So the Israelites naturally would have used these metaphors that, that God lives, the, the greatest of gods live on the mountaintop to describe their God as well. Yahweh lived on top of Mount Zion. So the heavenly city of Jerusalem is on the mountain. So basically and metaphorically, that's the holiest city that would shine brightly so the whole world would see this city of Jerusalem. Well, the problem with this metaphor is Zion's not a big hill. It's actually just a hill. It looks like a knoll. So it's a small hill compared to, and, and especially compared to other pagan god hills, it's quite small. So, is, so Isaiah actually talks about this when he says, when Israel gets right with God, then the mountain will finally grow to the tallest of mountains. Well, the problem is Israel doesn't get right with God. Instead of being chosen for a purpose, they end up being like this holy huddle of people. Instead of loving the other nations, they end up judging the other nations. So, so they were basically put their light under a basket, put their light under a covering, and so the hill never grew. The way that God promises that Israel will be a blessing, that the way that God carries out this promise is that he finally becomes one of the descendants of Abraham. He descended and became part of humanity, and Jesus becomes the one true Israelite. Jesus becomes the one true light of the world. He's doing exactly what Israel was supposed to be doing. Jesus became this light in dark places. So Luke actually describes Simeon, the priest, dedicating and circumcising Jesus at the temple 
when Jesus went, parents carried Jesus to the temple in Luke 2, it says, Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God. And he said, now master, let your servant now go in peace according to your word. Because my eyes have seen your salvation. You prepared this salvation in the presence of all peoples. There's that word again, all nations, all peoples, everyone. It's the light for the revelation to the Gentiles. He even says it. It's a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people, Israel. So when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he says that through a body. And when Jesus ascends, he establishes through the spirit, the new body of Christ. And we're the extension, the hands and the feet and the, and the eyes and the, and, the, and the legs and the arms, right? We are in Christ and we then are the light of the world. So Jesus looking at this crowd of people saying, this is your identity. You're now this light of the world. They would have referred back to not only the beginning creation story, let there be light, but they would also reflect back on these Israel is supposed to be the light of the world. Israel is this beacon of light for the sojourners in the darkness to be the protectors and the, and the guiders and giving guidance to eternity. So in the end of this passage, he tells us the point of light, actually. The point of light is that it would shine and illuminate that which is dark. So Jesus hung out and, and actually did this. He hung out with prostitutes and those with disease. And they thought that, that, that people had demons inside of them and he, he healed them. He hung, out with, he hung out with thieves and he hung out with the, un, uh, the unapproachables like the tax collectors and those that were sided with, with the government. So he crosses all these taboos and he heals people. He raises the dead. He tells people to get up and walk and he heals the blind and he goes to where people didn't want to go. He models how to shine light. He doesn't put it under a basket. He puts it way up on the city on the hill and basically grows that hill to righteousness so the whole world could see the light of Christ. So light is supposed to shine. You don't put it under in a hole. You don't hide it in a room. You don't hide it in isolation. You don't hide it in, in running away. You, uh, you let it shine so that all can see. So going out, that's, that's, what, it, that's what it's all about, is, is going to the ends of the earth. Going out is a struggle. And I would say it's a struggle now, but it's, it's also been a struggle for, for, the, for the beginning of Christian people, where you see in the beginning of Acts, where God actually had to go to Gentiles in a vision to activate the Christians to evangelize the Gentiles. Isn't that crazy? He had to go to those that needed God in order to activate those that had God to evangelize those that needed God. I mean, that's how extreme God had to get to pull us out of our boxes, to pull us out from our isolation chambers. So it's the nature of human nature to cling to sameness. It's the nature of human nature to, to cling to familiarity. We like people who look like us, act like us, dress like us, have the same ideas as us. That's a big one now. Can we actually hang out with people who have different ideas and opinions and preferences than us? Can we actually do that? Is, is it possible for us to sit in the same room as another person and disagree with them 
and still loved them. I think Jesus did that. He actually dined with such people. So I've talked about this in the past where we need to get out of our isolation chambers and our cones of sameness and reach out to those and listen to those with different thoughts. So sometimes I get into groups of people and pastors do this a lot of times where we all gather together as pastors and we all sound the same. We all act the same. Sometimes we all dress the same. We sat, I, I remember back in the, in the hipster days where we all had to be cool and wear skinny jeans and have piercings and a couple of tattoos and, and cool hair and, and the goatee. Remember the goatee of the youth pastor? I mean, that was a thing. We all looked the same. We acted the same and we even used the same language and even the same words. And then when we get together, we all said agreeable things that coincided with everyone's thinking, and then everyone shook their heads in agreement. Oh, that's really good. That's cool. And it didn't matter what those ideas were. It didn't matter if the ideas worked. It didn't matter if the ideas were biblically sound. It didn't matter if the ideas were even culturally, culturally relevant. You could say the earth was flat, and everyone would shake their head in agreement because you looked and acted and used words that were hip, that, that everyone just kind of like came into agreement. And we would sit in awe and we would sit in wonder of the profundity of the earth being flat. Well, I would say that that's just belly rubbing to me. How about a challenge? How about sit with people that you can't figure out? How about sit with people that rub you the wrong way? How about sit with people that are completely different thinkers than you? How about sitting with people that look different, act different, different backgrounds, different jobs, different learning modalities, different idea generators, different thinkers? How about just learn to, to sit with people, to listen to people, and even though you might disagree with their positions their thought patterns, or maybe they need to reshape their decision-making paradigms, that you would learn to love them anyway. But we have a fear. It's our nature to fear the other, the xenophobia. This is the fear of the other. And this is putting a light. When you sit with people that just are all agreeable and you all look the same and act the same and you all just like talk and we all talk profundity of nonsense, this is the light under the basket. And this is what Christians and the church and the, the history, this is, this is right back in Acts, and this is all the way to 2020 and forward, 2021 and forward, this is putting light under the basket. We are to bring our light into dark places. And that's how to shine the light that God is talking about so the world will see and they will see the love of Christ because we did such things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Lord, thank you that we are the light of the world and you identify us as such. Lord, I pray that you would help us to shine light in dark places. Lord, that we would go to people with differences and maybe we don't understand people. Maybe we don't understand what they're saying or maybe, maybe we just disagree with the positions that they take. Help us to love people purely 
like you would want us to love them. Help us to love people tangibly and actively, Lord, and to bring light into people's lives from nation to nation to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.